This is Green Planet, Blue Planet podcast featuring distinctly qualified global change makers that are dedicated to creating a healthier planet. One where diversity is lived, expressed and celebrated. My name is Julian Guderlei. I'm committed to a world that allows all people from all walks of life to thrive. And in today's episode, my guest is Rich Raz. Welcome, Rich. Julian, thank you. Pleasure to be on. Yeah, Rich is a co-founder and CEO of Flow Water, the world's most advanced water refill station and member of the Inc. 5000 list. Rich Raz is combining his, this vision with his 20 plus years of leadership and tech experience to deliver a product that keeps 5.5 roughly million plastic water bottles from reaching our landfills on, and oceans every second over, I think I said that wrong. You're like blinking. No, 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 I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Is it, I mean, is it 5.5 million? It's uh, five, five not, each second. Okay. It's five, yeah, it's it's five point five a second. Got it. And okay. we have, I'm, we I can just keep rolling. Yeah. All right. Great. Cool. That keeps five point five plastic water bottles from reaching our landfills and ocean literally every second. That's above three hundred million to date. And so, with his purpose-driven mission, partners like Google, Airbnb, Coachella, and many others. Um, and $50 million in funding from Blue Water, it's safe to say that Rich is just getting started with Flow Water. And so I'm, I'm stoked for this conversation with you, Rich, about water, about the need for, I think you call it uncycling. Is that right? Correct. That's, that's the, the idea behind our company. I mean, fundamentally, uh, the company was founded on a couple basic beliefs. One is that everybody deserves access to clean drinking water that they can trust. It's a fundamental human right. Number two is that we all deserve that and you all deserve that, but the environment also deserves not having the denigration and the destruction that is uh, caused by single-use plastic water bottles. So secondarily, our mission is to put an end to single-use plastic water bottles. And the way that we'll do that is by getting the world to move upstream uh, to uncycling so that, you know, the way to solve the way to solve single use waste problem is not to make the single use waste less bad. That's a little bit like just going from smoking marble reds to smart to marble lights. Uh, you're still smoking. So yes, it's in the right direction. But the way to solve the smoking problem is to stop smoking and smoking cessation, right? Um, and so using that as a parallel, our whole focus is on uncycling and getting uh, people to use product where no packaging is required, particularly in instances where it's not, it shouldn't be necessary. Mm. Yeah, plastic is not just kind of becoming the new smoking, it, it is the new smoking. Yeah, it's the, I, I, I commonly refer to single-use plastics as uh, the environmental cigarette. I mean, it literally is the environmental cigarette of uh, this decade. And, you know, I, I mean, the audacity of it, I was, I was, you know, when you're, you, when you're on a flight, you know, the idea that people used to be able to smoke in an airplane is just mind boggling. Yet it wasn't that many years ago that you could smoke in an airplane. And we're getting to the point now where using a single use plastic water bottle, I think over the next 10 years, will have kind of that smoking like visceral negative effect in response to people where you know people are looking at that saying how in the world could you be doing that or how could you do that to the environment or why are you touching that single-use plastic water bottle so it is uh it is indeed the new environmental cigarette yeah i mean there's there's a, a whole bunch of thoughts that are coming up for me because we're 
a lot of us know the situation where you're you literally need for a bottle of water and you didn't prepare and then the only option available right is that single use plastic water bottle and also i think very often there's just not enough um awareness at the point of contact or sale of an item like that that like you could simply choose to bring your own bottle and refill it mm -hmm. so there's something really interesting about the the parts of the we we call it the developed world but re really i mean it's it's a large part of the world that has flowing water on tap non-stop and i feel like especially in that part of the planet we're so taking this for granted that like barely anyone drinks it anymore because the the tap water is like literally you know um curated to a point of of, of not being neither tasty nor you know useful so that's where flow water comes in right Correct. So if you look, um, you know, if, if you look at the problem with big bottled water and single use plastics, uh, you know, and this, this includes ultimately to some degree, single use plastics of all kinds, right? But if we're focusing specifically on bottled water uh, and, and it's most pointed in single use plastic water bottles, we don't have a problem in the US or in many parts of the world called, if I could only find a water faucet, right? I mean, I, I, it, there's, there, there's more water access per capita in uh, much of, or most of the developed world, you know, and third world has a totally separate set of problems. They're also not the biggest polluters, by the way. So we're really focusing on the biggest, biggest polluters, which are, uh, uh, more developed nations, and we don't have a problem called, you know, can't find a faucet. Uh, we have a problem called, I don't like what's coming out of the faucet, right? And some of that was initiated through really brilliant marketing by big bottled water companies, right, in the 80s. Uh, so, I mean, you know, 50 years ago, you know, plastics barely existed 50 years ago, and then uh, bottled water started to become a little bit more, you know, maybe more like 70 years ago, and then, you know, 40 years ago, bottled water kind of started to make its way into the ecosystem in, in the 80s. Uh, and a lot of that was done through branding and marketing. Over 50% of bottled water is literally just packaged tap water that's, you know, sent through a production processing plant. And there might be some filtration or purification that's done to that. Sometimes there is, sometimes there isn't. Um, and so if we look at, well, why do people not like what's coming out of the tap? It used to be that there were far fewer reasons than there are today. And the irony is that the reason that people don't like what's coming out of the top today, if you look at the data, and, and I'll, I'll talk more specifically about American data, though uh, most of the data crosses continents, you know, and crosses the ocean. And so 75% of Americans either don't like or don't trust tap water. And, you know, that's because they don't like the taste of it. It tastes, you know, like too, 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 you know, the, the, the sodium content or the chlorine content on it is too high, or, or it could just be that they don't like the pollutants that are in it. Right. And that's very valid. I mean, if you look at glyphosate, glyphosate wasn't used, which is Roundup, glyphosate wasn't used commercially until uh, the seventies. Now there's trace amounts of glyphosate in almost anything that you eat and you drink. And so, you know, through uh, a variety of kind of human induced mechanisms, we've now polluted our water to the point where it is valid that consumers should have concerns about what they're drinking out of their tap. Uh, and it's not the fault of municipalities and water treatment plants. They were never designed for the level of load that we're taxing them with. 
And now actually bottled water is part of the problem, right? So we're literally, even if you don't drink bottled water, you're literally drinking bottled water. And what I mean by that is you're drinking the microplastics that are in bottled water in your tap water. And so there was a study that was done uh, several years ago that, that demonstrated that in a roughly one liter bottle of water, uh, there are over 300 microplastics and over 90% of bottled water tested. What was surprising wow. was that it was the same number. It was almost the exact same number for tap water. So 90% of the tap water that they sampled and they surveyed had over 300 micro particulates of plastic per liter of tap water. So this is like going back to my smoking analogy. This is like 10 non-smokers being in a room enclosed with one other person who is a smoker. So there's 11 people in the room, one person smoking, 10 or not, 11 people are smoking, right? Even if the 10 aren't smoking, they're smoking because they're, they're inhaling secondhand smoke. And it's the exact same premise with bottled water now, which is we're literally now drinking our plastics. The average American uh, consumes about two credit cards worth of plastics every month and ingests that uh, through natural sources of food and water supply. Yeah, the analogy to the smoking is really becoming like, it's really help, helping me see it as well because it's so obvious that when you're in a room with one smoker in a group of 11, and it's a small room that you're in the osmosis of the passive smoking, right? And so it's another level of where this interconnectedness pragmatically becomes real, that all of our life cycles are obviously connected. So if we throw away one, one way or single-use plastic, that's just the consequence. So what I've been learning over these last years of, of doing this podcast is that people usually don't wake up into action because of knowledge, but because of their heart and their own experience being impacted. Because we already have the knowledge about all the things that are going wrong, right? Mm -hmm. um, I guess my question for you here, Rich, is how do you stay optimistic and focused on the mission in, with, with such an amount of really kind of horrific data and then, and then consequent actions by some of the mega companies like Nestle? Well, I, I would, you know, it's interesting. I think it depends on the cohort as well. You know, so uh, of those that are more aware, right, which is, I'm sure your audience in particular is probably top two percentile, right? Um, there, is, there is much more a heart leaning towards doing what's right because it is right for the environment or for sustainability or for, for water equality, for example. Uh, then if you look at, you know, other cohorts, I think a lot of them don't know, right? I mean, when I, when I, when I, you know, the biggest way that I get somebody to, to, to drive behavioral change. And when I say I, I mean, it's not me, but it might be, you know, me being a voice of data or sharing learnings is, you know, when I talk about, uh, and, and when we talk about the fact that there are going to be more plastics uh, by the year 2050 in the oceans than there are fish or uh, uh, that the average American is, is drinking and eating two credit cards worth of plastic every month. It's a little bit like, uh, I believe it's the Abraham Lincoln quote, which goes along the lines of, you know, when 10,000, and it was a wartime quote, but I think the quote was along the lines of when 10,000 people, maybe it was Churchill, it was, it was some famous world leader during a war, that much I remember for sure, but it was something along the lines of, uh, when 10,000 people die, it's a statistic. When one person dies, it's a tragedy. 
and it is drawing down to kind of the unit of one of what it means for that one person and for some people it might be preservation and sustainability of the environment for the for another person it might be preservation and sustainability of the environment for the sake of their kids and generations uh, or their own health right which is you know if you're literally drinking your bottled water even if you're drinking tap water uh, and you're coating your stomach in plastic, it has an implication for your health, which causes people to think twice the next time they reach for a bottle of water or tap water for that matter anymore. Yeah, the whole statistic and like knowledge overload factor of it is very, it's, it's a very like uninspiring piece about activism or about any kind of change making, right? Is that it, it turns into a statistic that is for many people not the trigger into being active themselves. And what we, what we want is this, what's the pragmatic action step where, where this touches my life so I can, I can feel like I'm checking the box of actually showing up with my action rather than just with my thought good. Well, and, I, and that's a great point. And, and I think this is where, you know, ultimately requires several facets. I mean, one is like the heart level component around doing what's right because it's good for the environment. It's better for the environment. It's better for water quality. There might be a personalization of, of, of knowledge that makes people understand. There's other factors as well though, right? Which is no question. I mean, I, I, I um, you know, let's look at taxation as an example. When we look at what happened to taxation around cigarettes in the United States, I mean, cigarette usage used to be as high as 45% in the United States in the late 60s. And now it's into low single digits in the United States. Well, you know, that part of that is driven by education and, and, and the negative consequences of sustained smoking over a period of time. Part of that is due to the fact that it's socially vilified. I mean, it's, you know, for those people that smoke, it's not a very pleasant social experience in 99% of cases any longer. And so there is a um, social norm that needs to be developed around bottled water not being uh, a responsible thing to do and mouse. And then, you know, part of it also is it's not all like using a hammer, but I mean, some of it is also, you know, aspirational and inspirational, which is that, you know, making something better cool helps bring people along, right? And so part of this is, I, you know, it's a little bit like Tesla. And as a former Prius owner, um, I can attest to the fact that a Prius was incredibly reliable. Uh, incredibly sustainable. Uh, I got great gas mileage. I paid the price when I drove it for more than three hours and it wasn't a very cool car and it wasn't a lot of fun to drive. And what Elon did with Tesla was made sustainability and EV really cool, right? I mean, it's a badass car. It looks cool. It's got all these tech features and it happens to be good for the environment. And so when you hear people talk about their Teslas, you know, they, they usually, they, they, they don't actually generally in mass uh, other than certain cohorts, lead with, uh, this is great for the environment. They lead with, hey, I love never having to get, go to the gas station, or this thing is wicked fast, or I love you know, not having the whir of an engine, or having the whir of an EV as opposed to the rumble of an engine. And so there are other levers that we can and need to press on that drive people away from single-use plastics, to drive people back to the top and to do so in a way that gets them excited about what we're doing for a mission of bringing better tasting, more trusted water 
to consumers wherever they work, rest, and play. And that's the entire focus of what we're doing and the team is doing at Flowwater. I'm curious about your perspective, Rich, to just like stopping the production of bottled water. And can you can you expand on that? Yeah, I mean, let's look at, you know, let's look at just the state of the world where so many things are abundantly obvious when you actually look at it. And then there's this incentive that, well, all that might be true, it might be bad for the humans and the environment or the humans in the environment, which is ultimately connected, but we can still make a profit off it. So we'll sell a billion units this year. Yeah, well, so I, I, I'll, I'll go at that from a couple different angles and share my perspective, starting first with the consumer. So I'll give you an example. Something, you know, early on, early on in Flowwater's um, kind of career as a, as a company, uh, you know, sometimes we go into an office in Silicon Valley and, you know, it might be a, a VC's office or it might be a, a big tech company or it could be a hotel. And they'd say, you know what, we're done with bottled water. This is antithetical to our mission and what we stand for. It's wasteful. We're going to bring flow water in and we're going to stop giving bottled water away for free. And we're going to just force everybody to change and we're going to ban bottled water. And usually the first thing that I would say to them is, love the commitment to the cause, love the commitment of the, to the cause, but don't do that just yet. And so the precipice behind that was put a flow water in there and then see what happens over 90 days. Because naturally as humans, you take something away from us and you tell us we cannot do it and it's forbidden. Uh, what do we want to do? I mean, we want to do whatever it is that's being taken away or whatever it is that we can't have. I mean, it's a very natural you know, human behavior and, and, and emotive uh, response. And so the reason that we always try to guide companies away from necessarily like an immediate ban is we say, hey, give it 90 days and then introduce the ban and it won't even be a ban. You'll, you'll take it away and no one will know it's even gone. And what I mean happens specifically is, you know, we would put in a flow water device and we would see bottled water usage, free bottled water that was, you know, so this isn't happening in a school, for example, we have other data that's happening in schools. That's incredibly powerful about students drinking more water, drinking less soda, but setting that aside for a second, even environments that were, you know, like venture capitalists or hotels or big tech companies that were giving bottled water away. When we dropped in a flow water unit, well, suddenly they like it. It's cool. It tastes better. They prefer it to their favorite bottled water brand. What happened to the bottled water that was walking out the door that was being freely given? It dropped by like 90% within weeks, weeks and weeks. And so the ban happened as a result of positive behavior change in giving someone something better. Um, and so starting first from the consumer perspective, again, I'm not opposed to bans, but the, the, the data shows, you know, University of Winnipeg, Winnipeg years ago, banned bottled water and they did a pre-post on this ban, ban. This is like 10 years ago. They did a pre-post, but the data kind of applies because it's a human behavior thing. So they did a pre-post and what they did is they pulled single use plastics out of the garbage and recycling. So post-ban, they found that single use plastics remain static, which is really bewildering. They're like, well, how did this happen, right? Because we just banned bottled water and now single use plastics are still the same. Well, what happened? What happened is all the people who are buying bottled water switched to another single use plastic. It just happened to be sugary, carbonated, caffeinated drinks, and they're moving to soda. So they actually moved one step in a further away direction that was 
more deleterious to their health. And so the solution is give consumers what they want and what they want is something better. And that's the entire focus of flow water from a consumer perspective is give them something better. Now, working our way up, you know, you look at big bottled water, which, uh, you know, many times I compare to, again, like I could, I could talk it at, at length for the comparisons of big tobacco and big bottled water, big tobacco in the sixties and seventies and big bottled water today, you know, as it relates to regulation, lobbyists, uh, Taxation that could be applied to bottled water. Uh, you know, taxation was one of the big mechanisms that was applied to, to, to tobacco products that helped contribute among a variety of factors to its decline, significant decline. Uh, but my perspective with big bottled water companies ends up being as much as they're part of the problem today, they could also be a massive part of the solution tomorrow it needs to be market driven, right? So they're not gonna get there on their own. They're just not. They're gonna get there as a result of consumers advocating and vocalizing and expressing their choice through their wallet, through decision-making, the companies that they support and what they request, right? So when you're, in, when you're a student at a public school in high school and you want something that is better than whatever it is that you're being provided, vocalizing that has a meaningful impact. It's a lot like voting ultimately, right? I mean, I like to compare it to voting as well, which is, you know, if everyone looks at their collective vote and they say, hey, my vote doesn't matter, it's only one vote. It doesn't matter if everyone looks at it that way. Collectively though, if millions and millions of people look at it and they say collectively our votes do matter and in the singularity, that's what makes up the holistic effect of voting elections. And it's this is not a political statement. This is just a metaphor for how behavior gets changed and how circumstances get changed uh, in, in the macro, it starts with the micro. It starts with literally the most of micros, which is you and me and the decisions that we make today, what we evangelize for, what we ask for, to in some cases, what we demand, right? Uh, and so that's where I think, you know, the way that we get big bottled water to come along, I'd be thrilled to partner with certain big bottled water companies. I don't, I. I'm not going to partner with them if they don't have the right intention, but if they see the light, so to speak, and some of them are starting to see the light and they have a problem. I mean, this is like the big tobacco analogy, right? Which is, it's really hard if a huge portion of your PNL, if big tobacco in sixties and seventies was comprised of cigarettes, even if you didn't believe in cigarettes or you thought it was really horrible for health and environment and kids and on and on, really tough to work your way out of that when that comprises a huge portion of your livelihood as a company or your livelihood as an individual. It's no different with big bottled water companies. And I think the way to get them to a better way is for consumers to show them the demand for a better way. And then guess what will happen? What will happen is they're going to start to move towards products like flow water and unpackaging their water and bringing it back to the top. Mm. Yeah, that, that is that is so interesting because so first of all, thank you for for all of the answers that that were just in in that in that big share. There's a lot of really valuable information in there, and you know it's very interesting to observe the parallel between different kind of problem and like game changing solutions across the field of all the things that are going on, on the planet. So, for example, if we look at the way forests are managed, and we look at where I live at the moment in British Columbia. Um, in Canada, you know, there's ancient old growth forests, literally, um, people are 
protesting, tying themselves to trees to save these last trees at the moment. I was just there last week to, you know, support behind the scenes a little bit. And what comes to mind for me is over and over this, this, this idea of what's the path forward? What's the path forward that changes the energy and the interaction from destruction and saving from destruction into a well, ideally a shared path forward, but then the reality is just like, you know, when your only profit center is tobacco or your only, well, one of your really big profit centers is bottled water. Right. Then on a company level, or in the case of the logging industry, if your big profit center and the livelihood of thousands of people is logging trees, there is no, there's no real incentive for a pragmatic integration. Right. And that's where very often the reality of capitalism in like winner takes all kind of, uh, MO modus operandus and and the the idealism of activists or the idealism of people who have you know really big hearts and really smart minds often don't fully meet. Yeah, there's an opinion growing. Yeah, go for it. That's such a great uh, that's such a great parallel analogy to what's happening with the packaged goods industry and single use package goods in particular, and of course, bottled water very specifically. I think, you know, I, I mean, this is where, without getting too political about it as well, or, or ideological about uh, philosophies, I, this is where I think capitalism can work really, really well, but there's a requirement of consumers to line up choice in a way that um, makes capitalism work in the right direction. And I think, you know, it, that doesn't always work perfectly, right? But there is an element of some of this stuff. I look at how do things get solved, right? And changing uh, an economic ideology uh, would be a, a super interesting conversation to be had another day, right? I mean, you know, because there are certainly modifications that could be made and improvements could be had. The one thing that I do know is that consumers have choice. Consumers have choice. They have free will. They have the capacity and, and 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 the faculties to be able to make decisions in the same way that in free nations we get the vote. And the way that we we drive meaningful change is through voting. With in our case, with our wallets, with our voices, with our uh, evangelizing those things that do matter. And I'll give you an example of this. You know, so I've now been in this for almost ten years. Eight. I remember talking. I can't say the names of the big hotel chains. But I remember talking to somebody at a very large hotel chain nationally um, and was in charge of uh, water and like beverage, et cetera. And this idea was just really scoffed at. He was very, very cynical. You know, he said, this doesn't matter. Nobody cares. We make a lot of money in F&B on packaged water. Here are all the reasons why refillables aren't going to work. I mean, it was just, it was just a 90 minute conversation, 89 minutes of naysaying. And then there was like maybe a minute that I was able to get in there in terms of why, why this actually really mattered. And he just wasn't ready for it at that point. But part of it, the parallel, the parallel is uh, within the same organization and another hotel chain, but by the same ownership group, uh, very, very prominent head of uh, an executive who was, she was in charge of uh, rooms in a hotel, which, a VP of rooms is a very, very big role in hospitality, you know, because they're responsible for the guest experience and what the room experience is and getting people into the door. And she was sitting down with me, and this is a couple of years ago, and she said, we have a huge problem. I said, well, what's the problem? She said, the problem is 
we now have consumers that are coming into the room. And she says, it's never happened before. We have consumers that are coming into the room that are refusing to enter the room and unpack their belongings until the bottled water is removed. That has, so you think on a unit of one, well, no one's gonna hear that story. That story made it numerous times has made its way up from you know, the housekeeping to the GM of the hotel to the regional to the you know, hotel management company to corporate headquarters, the executive that's in charge of every room within a, ma a major national brand. And then they start solving for it, right? Mm -hmm. And so I, 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 um, I have a lot of hope and confidence and conviction in consumers being able to drive the change. Because when we look at the fundamental changes, legislation is important, but it, 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 it helps derive structure around a free market, but consumers will just find other substitutes if they don't like the removal of whatever it is. And so mm -hmm. I, I'm, I'm a fan of legislation, don't get me wrong, but I'm also a fan of providing a better choice for consumers because that's the way that we actually get people to change behavior is give them something better. Yeah, beautifully put. And we'll park the the, the longer conversation about the change, change of systems and economies for another time. I do think there's a whole other loop around corruption and lobbyism and then the education of the consumer, right? It's, especially when we talk about choice, that is like, it's, it's pretty deep, actually, how, you know, how, how, how tricky it gets for many people and the choices they get to make based on the dollars they have and the background info they have. Well, that's why I think these things are so helpful. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm um, just inspired by what you do because so much of what we learn today is propagated through propaganda. I mean, you know, whether that's media and most of media anymore uh, or advertising, right? And so just using uh, a very common term of greenwashing I mean, this is, this is uh, you know, I was on stage once. I, 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 I've been in this situation so many times that I can't recall this specific instance. But I was on stage with someone that was, had a sustainability for a big bottled water company. And, and every, every, every new coming company needs, uh, there's a David and Goliath story to all of these and everyone needs a villain. And in our case, you know, that villain or that David and Goliath and Goliath is big bottled water though I'd be happy for it to turn into something other than a David and Goliath mm -hmm. situation where we're working with them. We don't intend to necessarily fight them all the way, but you know, they, 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 the, the, one of the primary speakers for the sustainability panel at a very sustainability focused trade show that I was at and I ended up on a, on a panel with her later was you know, the head of sustainability for a big packaged water company. And what she was doing is spewing all the greenwashing that they were doing, which is like, you know, this cap with a little bit less plastic and recyclability. I use recyclability all the time as an example, which is, look, I'm a fan of recycling. If you recycle, good for you, fantastic, keep it up. I'm giving you high fives all the way. It's great, it's important. It's, it's, it, I, I think it's uh, essential. The reality is, if you look at the data, 80% of Americans don't recycle, right? And if you look at just the whole supply chain or the chain, excuse me, not necessarily the supply chain, but the, the chain of dis, uh, disposition of recycled plastics, a lot of what gets in the recycling bin doesn't actually make it through the reclamation and the recycling process, right? So that's a separate discussion altogether. But my point is after 20 to 30 years of evangelizing recycling, it's gone up single digits, 
you know, in the US, it's maybe 22, 24, 26%. Even in the best, most progressive markets where everybody recycles and nobody would admit to not recycling, like San Francisco, where uh, I've spent much of the last 10 years, the data is actually not that much better. If you just look at the data, it's almost like 28%. So yeah, it's better. It's single digits better. It's not like 3x better. And so it's here's a, the, the metaphor that I'll kind of carry into that is I'm not a vegan, but I respect people that are vegans for a variety of reasons, whether it's for... Um, animal welfare and, and, or, and, or, and or health reasons. But you know, if, if a vegan's trying to convert somebody or, or, or evangelize or educate someone on all the benefits of veganism, if you're talking to somebody that absolutely hates broccoli, but broccoli is the only gateway to becoming a vegan, they are not going to become a vegan, right? I mean, you end up, you end up having to find pathways where they like something or you find something else that they fall in love with. You know, it's almost like Brussels sprouts. I mean, no one would eat a Brussels sprout if they were prepared today, the way that I had them growing up, which are like whole and boiled. Right. But right. like you fry them and you throw balsamic vinegar on them and suddenly it's like a delicacy. Right. And so it part of getting people to change behavior is show them ways that good things can be good for them. Right. And I look at, you know, bottled water and kind of this greenwashing that's been done by, you know, I, I, I just, I just almost have a visceral reaction when I hear big bottled water companies talk mm -hmm. about the recyclability of stuff, because all they're doing is talking about moving people from smoking cigarettes that are filterless to marble reds or marble reds to marble lights. And the solution ends up being, hey, if smoking is bad, fine, use marble lights as a step down, but you got to stop smoking. Like that's the way to having you know a, a renewed life and a longer life and a more vibrant life and better health and vitality and you know generational impacts that are positive and the same goes with bottled water and so I as a bit of a missive there on how brainwashed that we have become but 100% I mean this is based on the absence of truth and and the absence of a platform which is why I'm such a big fan of what you're doing and providing a platform towards simply awareness as well as heart. Yeah, thank you, Rich. I, you know, it, it is very mind boggling how much media and, um, you know, advertising is, is so surrendered to profit primarily rather than the well-being, which would then also allow for more long-term profit. Because if we're aiming for well-being of people and environment, like we'll have a long time to play this, this, this game of profitability. Right. And so we're in this time where this is needing to change. Like this is our time on the planet where the, the footprint we leave and the impact we leave is actually, it matters. As you said, maybe um, it becomes more visible when we do that as a collective, but even one-on-one -on -one, these, these moments, they change who we are and these interviews and, and, you know, people listening in and, and me learning from people like yourself right now, it changes the way we all approach certain topics. And so I think that's also breaking open this hierarchy of, of who is who is in which role, right? Rather than let's together as a collective surrender to, you know, New Zealand is an, an interesting example of that as a, a nation state and a, a, an economy. Let's surrender to well-being as the new kind of centric metric or center metric of um, a, a domestic economy. Because if it's not generating well-being, why are we doing it in the first place, right? Mm -hmm. Well-being for, again, people, planet, mm -hmm. and then also companies. Hey, Rich, I have, um, I have another two questions or so for you. And one of them is, 
in towards just the younger generation listening in. Two of them actually are aimed for that. So my first question is, if you were to go back a few years and talk to your, you know, teenage, like 15 year old self, you've learned a bunch since then, right? I, what I, would you say? I have. What would you like two, two or three, like, like bullet points, uh, things that you'd be like, listen up this and this you should know about life. Well, is this about life as just not just sustainability, but this is about life, life. Oh, great. I, well, you know, I can, <laughs> I, I'll, I'll think about that in two ways. One is kind of my 15, 17 year old self. And then the other would be, I've got a, uh, a soon to be 18 year old daughter and a 19 year old daughter. So, um, you know, maybe, maybe this will drip on them as well. Uh, but because I've shared this with them. Uh, one is to really be coachable. I think this is, and, and we're in a society now, it's hard to hear this. And, and it's, almost, it's almost so societal culturally that it's almost hard to say it. It's not that hard for me to say it, but it's almost hard to say we've become a society that is very resistant to coaching. And there is a different level of um, lacking accountability that has been um, kind of created through the course of time. And I think this has a lot to do with parents, quite frankly. I mean, I think parents, but you know, society as well. And so uh, one of them is you own it you're accountable for it. And there's gonna just be a broad, and it doesn't mean that we shouldn't be addressing various issues that are systemic, culturally, uh, you know, which span a whole host of issues, none of which I'm gonna get into today because it would, it would, it would too germinate, you know, and, and polarize the bigger message. And the bigger message is you have to have, I believe, a perspective. And this is what I would tell my 15 year old self of I am completely accountable for myself and the outcomes, regardless of the circumstances that are thrown at me. And that's really tough for all of us, right? None of, yeah. you know, we all, I think from a human behavior perspective, I don't know if we're all wired this way, but it feels better kind of like a Coke tastes good in the moment, but it isn't very productive on a regular basis for your diet and your health and your wellness and your sustenance. But it feels good in a moment to feel like you're the victim, or you're the you're 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 the you're 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 being wronged, or some other force has affected you. And the reality is, in life, that's going to happen. I mean, sometimes you're going to be right. The reality, though, is if you have a perspective of I own it, I'm accountable, and I've got to be coachable for this, it opens up all of life to you. Because suddenly, then what happens? Well, suddenly, what happens is you're empowered, right? Suddenly what happens is that you actually have the power back to make this, the, the, the decision or change the course of the outcome. And you know the reality is probably more times than not, we've not been wronged, but even when you are wronged, taking back the accountability and the power and the choice, that's a good thing. That's a good thing because that's good. You know, not, not relying on others ends up being more empowering. And I, I think that would be one of the uh, the biggest messages. The second one, though, would be uh, kindness matters a lot, you know, and I think about this and uh, it's tough to know when to be, <laughs> this is going to sound funny, but I'm just going to say it. 
it's tough Go to know when to be kind and when to be tough, you know, and there are mm. certain times in my business where I got to be really tough. And in some time, in some cases, when I'm being really tough behind the scenes, I actually think I'm being kind because if I'm being tough on something, it might be because it's an organizational need. It might be because I really genuinely, truly believe it's the best thing for that person. And it doesn't feel like kindness at the time, but I'm ultimately wanting the best for them. But setting that aside for a second, you know, we've all had moments where we're impatient, we're boisterous, we're too aggressive, we've flown off the handle. Uh, maybe not Canadians, but at least in, at least us Americans, right? I, I typically think of, of Canadians as uh, one of the kindest societies. I think kindness really matters. And I've tried to make it a point uh, in a very simple way that I've tried to apply this in my life. And I'm not suggesting by any stretch that I've done uh, certainly not a great job of, at it, but I'm not even suggesting I've done a good or an adequate job of it. But I would say trying to find opportunities in the course of life where I can be kind to others when it's, when it's easiest. And I'm not saying just be kind when it's easy, but I'm saying, especially when it's easy, mm -hmm. especially when I'm driving and I'm not in a hurry, or especially when I'm waiting in line and it just doesn't matter because I'm not on deadline and I'm not pressed for something and I don't need to like kind of squeeze my way in. I try to generally look at, okay, in the 70% of life where I am not just like rapidly in the hunt for getting something done and I'm urgent or I'm behind or whatever it is. And then what I find is when I open up to the areas where it's easiest to do, then my mind actually becomes more aware of the other 30% when it's not easy for me to do it, but then I have a level of conscious awareness of it and I can kind of catch myself when like I'm muscle memory. Right. Yeah. right? So, um, those would be the two things that I would I would I would give to a, a younger a younger generation that um, strike out to me and they've been lessons that I've learned and uh, I've learned those lessons. I mean, when I and I, I, I I've learned them, but I'm working on applying them. Like all of us, I am still working on applying those lessons. But I've learned those lessons through a lot of mistakes along the way. Quite frankly, I mean, love to say that I I did that I do those things naturally. I don't. I have to work at those things. Uh, it'll be a lifelong endeavor for me, but uh, those are my two. Yeah, I hear you. I hear you on them. There's definitely there's there's definitely some some life advice in there that you know when you hear it in the right moment, it it actually clicks. Especially for people who are overly kind as a default, but are building a business and they don't know when to be tough. That's the flip side of that, right? Because sometimes when you're building something, life will test you. Are you really committed to this? And so right. putting your head down is also a skill. It's maybe not how to lead in every interaction, but it's also a skill. And so it's, it's a very interesting fine balance that, yeah, we, we get to walk here as, as, as people. Rich, I have a last question, but it's also aimed towards kind of, you know, a, a multi-generational approach. So this is actually the question I started this whole podcast with, and it is about this idea of, you know, thinking feeling connecting to seven generations on the planet. And so my question for you is if, if you were to zoom out right now on the timeline and you see, you know, seven generations forward into, you know, your family tree or human family tree, what's the, the vision, the, the dream that, that, that you're here to live and that you want to, you know, want to create um, for these seven generations forward? Wow. That's such a terrific question. I, I will, I will confess and say, I've not thought 
seven generations, though I have thought in the context of um, generations, plural. So it's interesting to think about seven generations because that's, that's a different level of thinking than just multi-generational. Um, I'll tell you, this might, be, uh, this might be a bit of an unconventional answer. I'll tell you the first thing that comes to mind because it's the, it's the most pressing thing on my mind as it relates to um, generational impact. And, and I won't go too deep into this because then it creates a polarity, but having a spiritual life of purpose is really, really important, right? And in and, and, and my conviction and in my belief, and uh, that's what I want to have imparted in both my daughters and in the generations that follow is that, you know, there's, this, is, this, this is not a life about making a lot of money. This is not even a life necessarily of making a lot of friends and amassing, uh, and even from a flow water perspective, I and mean, I think about this from a flow water perspective, which is while flow water is a mission in my life, that's a part of my life, doing something, bringing water equality in, 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 in the foundational acts, a belief that everyone deserves access to clean drinking water that they can trust, that's a part of my mission, right? Ending single use plastic water bottles, that is my, a part of my mission. That is not the Rich Rasgatis genealogy, multi-generational mission though. That is a uh, subset of it. Uh, a, the, the greater order to me ends up having a meaningful life of purpose in spiritual development and rooted in an understanding of what that is because that is evergreen, that is enduring. And that supersedes even doing something great for the environment. I think doing something great for the environment is important. I think it's, uh, you know, what I have 50 teammates aligned around and many investors and now 350 million fills of flow water later, a lot of consumers that are wired around that. But there is a greater purpose for all of us uh, beyond the work purpose or beyond the business mission or beyond the environmental mission mm -hmm. uh, from my perspective. And so that would be one that, that um, I hope to help impart and carry uh, generationally for the Rasgatis family. Beautiful. I'm going to let that one sink in. This was a great end to our conversation. Fantastic um, question. I loved it. I've never been asked that question before, but that's that I'll, I'll be thinking about that for think many, about it for a bit. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure it's roughly I mean, if we take the old way of measuring generations and the old way, meaning like 35 years life expectancy, which is totally not where we are today, but that's 210 ish years into the future. Right. So it's quite a way out. And it's very interesting because we're not here to guess what the future is going to look like. But how close do we live by our values and by, as you said, our purpose of the reason why we're here in the first place? Yeah. Thank you so much, Rich. Julian, thank you so much. Enjoyed it.